We are continuing in our look at Gospel of Truth in the book of Galatians. Again, this is one of Paul's most emotional books. You get to see a side of him we don't always see uh, within his passages. But in this particular book, he speaks his heart, and uh, very often his heart is torn by what he sees as failure to remain true to the Word of God. So one of the things this book does, and this is just an aside that doesn't specifically speak to the needs of this message, um, I am eternally grateful for the book of Galatians. For it does several different things. It helps remind us of the truth that we are supposed to follow and to be committed to. But it also shows us that it is a good and right thing when we are facing burdens and we face challenges to the kingdom, it's okay for us to be upset. It's okay for us to struggle. It is okay for us to want very vehemently to see God's Word maintained. And so every once in a while, if you have felt a little maybe unspiritual because anger has risen up in your heart because of what you see going on in the world and in the church across the land today. May I remind you that the Word of God, again, from the hand of Paul in Ephesians says, be angry, then says don't sin. Don't give the devil a foothold in your life. So this is going to be again, and I'm going to need you to really listen because this passage has some challenges for us. But before we get into the text itself, I want to remind some of you of something that you may have forgotten. Uh, hopefully you, many of you, if not most of you, know what the words e pluribus unum mean. They are Latin. And this was the first official motto for the United States of America. Uh, the U.S. Continental Congress in 1782 uh, named it as the model to be placed on the great seal of the United States. Uh, it is no longer the motto of our country. In 1956, Congress passed uh, a bill that had In God We Trust become our motto. Uh, but I love this motto, and it's important for me. And in Latin, it means out of many, one. And the whole focus was uh, that there was a cohesive, single nation formed by the bringing together of 13 colonies, some of which were very different. Uh, the motto still uh, shows up on some U.S. coins, even though it's no longer the motto of our nation. Now, I have always loved it because as, as soon as I learned what it meant, I understood something. Here we are, the United States of America, 50 states, and now three territories. We are people who have gathered from all ethnicities, all uh, from different nationalities. We have come together into what has been called once a great melting pot to form one coherent nation. Now, sadly, 
Uh, you don't have to watch the news very much to know that for many different reasons, the unity of our land is at risk. One more time, we find ourselves in great division. And for those who say we've never been this divided, I like to point out historically things like the Civil War, the, um, the reach for the end of prejudice of equal rights for folks who have been excluded, the Vietnam conflict. We have faced great division before. We're divided over many issues, and some are warring if we can actually remain one out of many. I hope and pray that we find a way to get through the rhetoric, to get through the, the anger that is not righteous, and come together. But in all honesty, as much as I hope and pray that we as a nation can reestablish the, uh, the idea of one out of many, my prayer is that the sense of unity in the body of Christ will become crucially important to us. In this land and across the world, there are different people from different backgrounds coming together. I love the hymn we sang. In Christ there is no east nor west. In him there is no north or south or north. Folks, the reality is we are the body of Christ. And right now, we spend an, an unfortunate amount of time waging war with each other. Across denominational lines, sometimes when the, within one church, there are battles that are being raged. And I believe the body of Christ needs unity. We are joined together of all true believers from many ethnicities, nationalities, denominations. And it's time for us to form a united front. It's time for us to acknowledge if they truly know the Lord, if they have the faith in Christ that the Word demands, if they understand the Scripture to be God's Word, we need to work together and not work against each other. It's time for us to understand that as the body of Christ, as well as this nation, united we stand. And if we cannot find that unity, if we cannot find a way of working together, then we are making the task God has called us to far more difficult than it need be. So I invite you to join with me as we explore today's text. It's going to be Galatians 2, 6-10. through 10. And we are going to see an amazing victory that Paul won in Jerusalem as the body of Christ came to understand the need for unity. So I ask you to stand as we look at the text and be prepared because some of the words sound a little tough. Uh, my daughter likes to inform me every once in a while I get a little bit snarky. Paul sounds a little bit snarky here. Hear what he has to say. But from those who were of considerable repute, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of repute contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who was at work for Peter in his apostleship in the circumcised was at work with me for me also to the Gentiles. 
And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, at the heart of this passage, the most important thing I can say at this moment in time, Paul's ministry, Paul's gospel, was recognized as valid by leaders in the church of Jerusalem. They said, you are doing what God has called you to do. Now, the way I understand this passage playing out, we're going to look at some principles, because clearly... We cannot do and experience the exact thing that Paul did here, can we? But there are principles within this text that will help us know that true believers have a great need to stand together for the cause of Christ. We need to find a unity in Christ that we don't always see. Why is it important? Well, if we make a decision that the 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 Lutheran church down the road, a couple blocks is not our enemy, nor the Methodist church, nor the Presbyterian, or non-denominational. They're not our enemies. Maybe we can find out principles about why unity is important. We need to stand together to find what God wants us to do. So let's take a look at the principles, okay? By standing together, we show there are no superstars in God's kingdom. Now, this might be a little bit too colloquial for most people. In, in a sermon, you don't expect superstars, but folks, I mean exactly what I say. There are no superstars. When you look at Paul and what he had to say, I don't know if you caught with the tone I read, Paul's works about considerable repute those who were reputed to be, that sounds a bit harsh to us. It sounds like he is saying they were reputed to be, but they weren't really. And I don't think that's what happened at all. Chuck Swindoll made a really good point about this language. At first glance, Paul's language could seem to be standoffish and a little bit arrogant. After all, when you look at him, he calls the apostles... Peter and John, along with James, the brother of our Lord, those who were of high reputation, uh, those who were reputed to be pillars, those who were considered great, and that just sounds a little offensive. But I don't think, oh, can't forget that parenthetical statement where he just interrupts himself. What they were makes no difference to me. That sounds harsh, right? I think what we need to understand, this was not a subtle put-down by Paul. I think Paul honored these men. First of all, he wanted to meet with them to get their understanding. He had a private meeting with Peter early, and James was along so they could get to know one another. He acknowledges them to be apostles. He acknowledges the work they've done in Jerusalem and Judea and then their area of the world. He acknowledges that they really were great men of God. What is he doing? Remember those people who are causing trouble in Galatia? Those are the ones he's going after. Because these people, these Judaizers, 
would look at Peter and James and John and say, they're super apostles. They're the kind of apostle that Paul should be, but he's not. He's everything but what he should be. He never saw Jesus in the flesh. He never followed the Lord. He has added things to the gospel that should never have been added. The fact that you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to become Jewish before you can come to faith. And they were holding these men. Folks, they were doing what a lot of us do. They were putting these people on pedestals. And Paul was saying whatever they're considered to be, they were men. I think Paul honored the office these men had. And he has shown that. But he's saying, I am not going to be overawed by these men. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem and quake and bow before them as though somehow they were extra special in the kingdom of God. And when he says they they didn't make any difference to me, whatever they were, he's saying, look, I know they were with Jesus. But that doesn't do anything to my ministry. So I'm not going to treat them as though, as individuals, they were something amazing and powerful and awesome and I'm just poor, pitiful me. Paul was reacting to the Judaizers. And rather than being overawed or over-enamored by them, he recognized, God has given me a call just like he gave a call to them. Paul was telling the the Galatians that they would just hear him. He had no reason to be jealous of these men. He had no reason to feel inferior by these men. He said, yes, they have valid ministries before God. Their roles in Jerusalem are clearly seen. He knew that they were truly called of God. But Paul wasn't going to be overwhelmed because he knew, I have been called by God. And I have a place in this kingdom. And I will not surrender God's purpose in my life for any man. Now, there are people in our lives who have a profound effect on our walk with God. That's undoubtable. Every one of you, you could probably start naming people who had huge impact on your life. Let me do that for you. Those people who've touched my life that have have had an impact on me in so many different ways. You've heard some of them before, but let's go through a little roster. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer who showed in his actions and his words the courage of Christian conviction. And and I am just amazed at a man who was willing to lose everything for his faith in Christ. And then another for me is uh, the late John R.W. Stroud, an an evangelical Anglican whose book, Between Two Worlds, was one of the textbooks in one of my preaching classes when I was much younger. And that book had a huge impact on me because he made a point that has stuck with me throughout throughout the rest of my ministry. It's not enough for me to get up here and tell you, this is what the Bible said, amen. He says, my job is to build a bridge between what the Bible said then And how does it have an impact on us today? And so you may or may not be aware that every sermon I preach, I will give explanation of the text. I will build an argument from that. 
And then I will tell you, how does this apply to us? How do we make this real? You can thank John R.W. Stott for that. And then there was Vance Havner. Uh, I've quoted Mr. Reverend, Brother Havner a lot. I think he'd die if I called him Reverend. Uh, Vance Havner a lot. He was a Southern Baptist preacher. And uh, I only have gotten to hear a couple of his audio sermons, but I have read his sermons and I've read his books. And here was a man who taught me you can speak to the heart of human beings and it doesn't have to be flowery speech and it doesn't have to be ten-syllable words. You can speak to people where they are and it can be a powerful move of God. And then there was Leonard Ravenhill, and I've mentioned him a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, Ravenhill's books, I keep handy. Because every once in a while, when I am looking and saying, Danny, are you where you should be? I will read Ravenhill. And his books have brought me to my knees on many occasions for much needed repentance. When I saw that somehow I was losing sight of what God wanted me to see. He is the one I read. Uh, I had some people accuse me, you, you were preaching right at me today. Not really. I'm leaving that in the hands of God, but Leonard Ravenhill preaches right to me. Then, Keith Green. And I will talk about him a lot because this man's music continues to touch and move my heart decades after he went on to be with the Lord. And I'm so thankful that someone introduced me to the one who would write, Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Then there's Watchman Nee. Uh, Watchman Nee was a Christian uh, minister in China. And uh, the last 20 years of his life were spent in a prison in a horrible type of persecution, not even allowed to go and have a, a brief time away from the prison to go through the, the funeral services of those he loved. Uh, he wrote a book entitled The Normal Christian Life. It was actually taken from a book, uh, a group of speeches he'd given to some brothers and sisters in Europe uh, before he was arrested. And uh, his book has helped me understand and have a desire. I first read it when I was a junior in high school, and I take it out and read it every once and again. It's basically talking about the book of Romans. And he helped remind me of my need to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And then there was David Blaze. You probably will not know that name unless you've listened very carefully to me through the years. Uh, Brother David will never make a Christian history book. He knows that. He understands that. He's never been on a bestseller list. But Brother David Blaze was a man under whose ministry I surrendered to preach. And he gave me the greatest gift he could ever have given me. Brother David taught me what it meant to be incarnational in my preaching. And what that means, David taught me more than any other pastor I've ever sat under, be real with your people. Don't stand up in the pulpit and act like you have got everything together, you've got every answer, question answered, that you know everything. He taught me that it's okay for a pastor to be real. And I've allowed that to guide my heart and my ministry forever. So what does this have to do with us? 
we must not lose sight of the singular truth. God has no favorites. It doesn't matter to me what they were. God doesn't look at people the way we do. He's not, God isn't impressed with superstars. In fact, if you read the Bible carefully, you will notice that there is a theme that shows up a lot. It's called the great reversal. Those who are high and lifted up get brought low. And those who've learned humility are exalted by God. So he's not impressed with superstars. And I hope you will understand what I'm about to say. Again, both ears in your heart. Listen carefully. There are no great men or women of God. But there are many men and women who have lived their lives in surrender to a great God. And whatever they may have accomplished, if they truly are the saints, the servants of God that he wanted them to be, they would each one of them tell you, don't honor me, honor the Lord Jesus. Honor our God. So let's not be modern idolaters, okay? I could branch that out for another 20 minutes. But let's not put men and women up on pedestals. Remember, God is the one who deserves all of our praise. And so, how do you apply this in your life? When we say God has no favorites, embrace the truth that you are important to the kingdom. If you are God's child, it doesn't matter if you're a famous evangelist or you are a custodian in a local church, it doesn't matter if you get to awards in preaching or if you just get to sit with a group of kids and talk to them about Jesus in a Sunday school. Your lives can have an impact on the kingdom of God. And a kingdom that is built by men and women following the Lord who has established the kingdom. And you can have an impact greater than you could imagine. Don't try to be someone else. Here I am, God. You use me as you see fit. And I pray that you will help me be effective for the kingdom. So by standing together, we recognize no superstars, no reason to be jealous, no reason to want someone else's ministry. And then by standing together, we recognize that each has a role in the kingdom. Since there are no superstars and you are important, what we're seeing in here, every single child of God has a role to play. And we recognize this in this text. The pillars who are finally named for us, James, the brother of Jesus, Peter and John, the pillars fully recognize God's hand in Paul's ministry. Now, folks, can you imagine? If you're an enemy of Paul and you're wanting to bring him down and you want Paul to put in his place, what better place to see him than in Jerusalem where Peter can get hold of him? And James and the other apostles, they were ready. They just knew they were going to say, you're a phony, you're a fake, you've added things that didn't belong. You did not follow God's call. 
these enemies thought Paul was going to be taken to the woodshed, that Paul was going to be put in his place. And instead, after listening to Paul and Barnabas, these men, James, Cephas, also known as Peter and John, gave to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Have you ever wondered where that term comes from? Lo and behold, it's within the Word of God. But I want you to know this isn't just about shaking hands. This isn't about something that we waited two years before we could do again instead of just bumping fists. It's not a social nicety. This was an agreement, if you will, This was a covenant between these pillars, Paul and Barnabas, that we know you are of God. And they endorsed these men that the Judaizers were sure they would rip apart three different ways. First they said, we're recognizing that Paul's ministry is not in competition with us. It's actually complementary. You see, Peter... His primary role was preaching to the circumcised. King James, unfortunately, makes it sound like there are two Gospels. Peter preached the uncircum- Gospel of the uncircumcised. Paul preached the, uh, the circumcised. Paul preached the Gospel of the uncircumcised. That's not what it means. It means Peter's primary audience was the Jewish people. Paul, they're saying, you're not encroaching on our turf. You're not getting... Your primary purpose, we see this, is to preach to Gentiles. They had the same call, the same heart of ministry. They just had two different spheres of focus. And they say, we see this. This is God. Now, please understand, Peter preached to Gentiles. Remember? He preached the gospel to Cornelius. And Paul In his journeys, wherever he'd go into a new town, he'd stop at the synagogue first, if there was one, and then he would go to the Gentiles. So this isn't saying, okay, Peter, you can no longer talk to a Gentile, or Paul, you can't talk to Jews. It's just saying your primary focus is what God is doing doing for you. And then they're acknowledging that Paul's ministry is equal to Peter's. The very same God who empowered Peter to do what he was going to do was empowering Paul to do what he was called to do. And they said in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that would happen after this visit, they actually said, we even see the same kind of signs and wonders manifested in Paul's ministry that we saw on our own. And then finally, Paul says, they recognize God's grace in my life. Just like Peter had the grace of God in his. So here is this incredible statement that was supposed to blow Paul out of the water, was supposed to win the argument for the Judaizers, and instead these men were saying, Paul is doing exactly what God called him to do. Now for us, the analogy of the body of the church's Christ's body is crucial for our understanding. For us to really get this, we need to go back to the idea of, that we are the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul wrote, For just as the body is one and yet has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 
And each person here has a part to play as a member of the body. Different tasks, but the same God calls. Different gifts, but the same God gives. And here's where I need you to understand. I need you to really hear. If we fail to do what we are meant to do in the body, the body suffers. I now have had both eyes, the cataracts removed. But after the first one was removed, I had no bad, I had an idea how bad my vision really was. And I pulled that pad off and I started putting drops in. I opened up, when I could open it up wide, it was like high definition TV. It was bright. It was shining. The, the light hurt my eyes. I, and so I closed my right eye and looked out my left and it was yellow and dingy. It was, and I had no idea that my eyes were giving me this much trouble. Thankfully, with modern medicine, that, that body part is being taken care of. Those body parts are taken care of. But when we refuse, when we say, I don't have a gift or I don't have a ministry, I'm just, my job is to be support. If we essentially say we are here as spectators, the body is going to suffer because each one of us has a place. If we're willing to use our gifts, if we're willing to ask God, show me what you want me to do, enable me to do it, then this church will be able to accomplish more of what God wants her to do. So how do we apply this? Actively seek to fulfill your role in the kingdom of God. And if you don't know what your role is, ask. Start praying. And some of you may think, well, Danny, I'm too old now. Um, it's time for me to, to sit back and let the young people come along. And I'm getting in that old, you know, I, I'm definitely on the far end from the generation gap now. But when you start telling me you're, you're too old, may I remind you of a certain man by the name of Caleb in the Word of God? One of the Israelites who had tried to tell Israel, we can go and take this land of milk and honey. And Israel said, no, we can't do it. We just can't. Well, when Israel is finally getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, Caleb is well past 80 years old. And do you remember what he said when he was told his territory? Give me my mountain. I am ready to go. So wherever you are, if you're a very little child of God, if you're an older child of God, you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, God still has a role. I haven't done this in a long time. So I'm going to ask you, take your pulse. Those who are willing, if you're afraid not to, or afraid to, well, if you have a pulse right now, God is not through with you. You have a task. And so commit by God's grace to exercise the gift and calling and make a contribution to the body of Christ. There are no superstars, but there are individuals gifted 
in a lot of different ways, and each way is important to the kingdom. And then finally, in a part of the text that just seems completely out of place, it just seems weird, kind of, by standing together, by standing together, we can find a common compassion for those in need. As I read the text, did you just kind of think when we came to verse 10? What? Because we've been talking about the gospel, the gospel to the Gentiles, gospel to the Jews, and all of a sudden, but the one thing they asked us to do was to remember the poor. And it just seems so out of place. It's very crucial that you understand something here. When the pillars asked Paul to remember to help the poor, they were not giving an additional hoop to jump through in order to be saved. They weren't saying you need to trust in Jesus, plus you need to be generous people. That was not it. It was not an order of what has to happen to be saved. What it was was a reminder. A reminder to walk in fellowship with the body, particularly when it's suffering and it struggles. And when they say to Paul, remember the poor, the poor for them, most likely they're referencing the poor in and around Jerusalem. The Christians who are at the very bedrock at the beginning of the church, who gave their lives to Christ and because of that, lost out. They lost family and friends. They lost means of making a living. They were poor specifically because of their faith. Now, Paul says, I was eager to do that. Now, if I'm right, and this visit to Jerusalem actually goes to Acts 11 instead of the the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, if you'll remember, Acts 11, Paul went to Jerusalem because there had been a prophecy about those who were poor in Jerusalem. And Paul was wanting to do something. So he already had a heart to do it. And I don't think he was questioning whether or not they understood that. I think they were saying, Paul, we know that you love the poor. We just encourage you never to forget them. Never turn your back on those who are in need. Unfortunately, this is a very far cry from the approach that many people in life take today, even some who are who name the name of Christ. When there's a need and there's a problem, there are a lot of people out there who say, why should I care? It's not my problem. I'm not needing anything. I'm okay. Why should I get involved with other people and their pain and their struggles? Why? Well, I'm going to put this as gently as I possibly can. Not really, but faith without compassion is not real faith at all. Period. If you do not have a compassionate heart, if you do not have a heart that says, I see a problem and I'm able to do something about it, so God, give me the courage to stand up, help me follow through, then your faith... Well, folks, first of all, let me remind you of Jesus. 
Everywhere we see Jesus in the Gospels, he's meeting need, isn't he? When people are hungry and the disciples want to send them back home, he feeds them. When people are lame, he restores their ability to walk. When people are lepers, he cleanses them. The blind he causes to see. Over and over again in the Gospels, you find Jesus refusing to turn away. One of the the songs that I, I take most umbrage with in the rock musical Jesus Christ Superstar has Jesus been encountered by hundreds of people. Lord, see my hand I can, and all the different things are going on. And all of a sudden, in frustration, Jesus screams out, Go away from me. Heal yourselves. That's not the Jesus of the Word of God. And then James, his brother, who's part of this, this meeting, said, What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone has, says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And then John, one of the others in the meeting. First John 3, 17 says, Whoever has worldly goods and see his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does that the love of God remain in him? And Timothy George talking about this moment when, when Paul said, I'm eager to help the poor. George wrote, Paul knew, as we must, that the gospel he preached was addressed to living persons, soul and body, in all of their broken humanity and need for wholeness. It's hard to hear the good news when your stomach is rumbling. It's hard to hear the good news when your life has been shattered. And so we are called. We are called to recognize that if compassion is not part of our lives, there's something wrong with who we are as children of God. So how does this apply? Together we need to commit to helping a world that hurts. Together. We need to find ways to touch people in the moment of their need, in the moment of their pain. We can encourage each other. We can remind each other, be compassionate. Have a heart. Care about people. That's what Jesus would want you to do. We can remind each other of the importance of meeting needs so that people are able to really hear us. And we can ultimately point to Jesus, the one who patterns the life of faithful. I follow my Father completely, and I minister to those in need. And that's the pattern. And we can finally remember that together we can do far more than we can do individually. This is the heart behind these mission offerings each year. Small churches 
that would not be able to send a missionary themselves can be helpful in getting people on the field to do the task God has called them to do. United. I came across a wonderful article by Steve Asunasami, uh, written for ABC News back in August of 13. As cubs, three of the world's top predators, a lion named Leo, a Bengal tiger named Shere Khan, and an American black bear named Baloo, have been owned by a drug dealer who didn't take proper care of him. The bear's harness grew into his skin because the owner didn't alter it as the family grew. The animals had been abused and neglected early in life, but were finally rescued in 2001. The bear's harness was surgically removed, and all three have recovered 100%, and they were taken in by Noah's Ark Animal Sanctuary in Georgia. And he wrote, the, church, the staff initially tried to separate them, afraid that they would constantly be in fighting, these three mega predators. But they found out when they separated them, they acted out even more. The animals were uncooperative. They wouldn't do what was needed to be done. And somebody had this brilliant idea, well, let's put them back together. And once they were reunited, they calmed down. They behaved well. And 12 years into their life at Noah Ark's sanctuary, they spent the day together playing playing ball, cuddling, chasing each other, eating cookies. Allison Hedgecoth of the sanctuary said, they live together and they don't see their differences. Folks, as the body of Christ around this world, we have cultural, ethic, ethical, social differences but we all belong to the same body. And we need to stand together. And one day, we are literally all going to be together in the kingdom of God. And folks, we are not going to be segregated there. All together, and we won't care what we were. We need to understand our need to stand united. For together we remember there are no superstars in the kingdom. Together we can recognize each of us has a role. Together we can find a common compassion for those in need. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. And I ask you to look deep into your heart today and see if you really understand that united we stand. If unity has never been a priority in your life, well, you've been quite comfortable being the lone ranger. You've been quite comfortable being on the edge. You haven't understood the need to work together, to be together, to grow together. Please, I ask you to open up your heart and recognize this is crucial to a healthy body of Christ. So today I ask you to help, ask God to help you seek, as Paul did, to join yourself together with others in the body of Christ. To become part of a covenant that says we are one and we need to work together.